HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, I'm your host, Kathy Irving. You're listening to Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network, brought to you by TechServe. Um, we're here at Roberta's Pizza in sunny, sunny Brooklyn, Bushwick, that is. Um, just a quick note about our sponsor, TechServe. It's New York's leading pr- premier authorized Apple reseller. TechServe has a solid reputation in technology, sales, and service. And as a company that believes in honest and forthright business, TechServe is a proud to sponsor Heritage Radio in the, in the promotion of sustainable lifestyles. To support sustainability in New York City, TechServe is holding an e-waste recycling drive on Saturday, this Saturday, April 10th, from 10 to 4 p.m. For more information, check out TechServe.com. That's our wonderful sponsor. Um, so today, we are so I'm so excited, and I hope you are too, to have a really great f- long-standing food advocate, food justice, food policy, uh, tireless uh, worker in that field, and an author as well. And she's just... Uh, published a brand new book. It's a humongous book too, and I just finished it over the weekend. I'm so I'm so happy to have Anna LePay on our show. Um, her new book is called "Diet for a Hot Planet: The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It." And um, so, thanks so much, Anna, for being here. Thanks for having me. Cool. So I love how you talk about you know you put it out there in the very beginning. Um, most people think of climate change, when they think about, you know, the climate crisis, it's all about cars, carbon dioxide emissions. They really think about um, livestock production or even just, um, you know, corn production. Everything that you touch, you know, that goes to your, that you eat really plays a huge role in, in climate change and emissions. And, and it's, it's more and more prevalent because it's an everyday thing too. You don't buy a huge appliance every day. You don't buy a car every day. That's exactly right. And that was a big motivation for me in writing this book is to help people get it that what we eat has this direct connection with the climate crisis. And when I was doing the research for the book, 
I was particularly struck about how little media there is about the fact that the food system, and this includes everything from livestock production to uh, to the deforestation in climate change hotspots because of palm oil production, all of it, all of it combined, it's estimated that about a third of all global emissions can be traced back some way to our our food system. A and that's, third of a pie. That's, that's amazing. That's big, right? Yeah. And yet, as you mentioned, you know, we don't typically think about food and we think about climate change. So uh, I hope uh, that I am uh, helpful in some way with this book and with the media that I'm doing around it to help be part of a, a whole group of us and many colleagues that are really trying to get this message out there. And, you know, one of the reasons is because we've been eating for the beginning of time, right? Um, we haven't had had a you know huge global market for the beginning of the time where we haven't had as many cars on the road for so that's why it's like kind of an easy culprit but you've you've really mapped out here how much the way we eat is totally different from the way we used to eat right and actually the many of the same drivers behind why we have uh the emissions that we have from the transport sector or from any of the other sectors are the same drivers with food in the sense that just as we've industrialized so many other sectors, we've industrialized our food chain. So when we when we go into the supermarket, we don't really see necessarily the story behind our food. We don't see those smokestacks spewing the emissions. We don't see the the pollution from factory farms. But we have just in the same way in other sectors, we've become totally addicted to fossil fuels when it comes to our food whether it's powering the tractors or the fossil fuel-based uh, chemicals that we use, synthetic fertilizers, all down the line. Right. And it's kind of, um, it's it's really cool how you talk about the future of things to come. Um, there's a chapter called The Shape of Things to Come, and it's, it's a little omin- ominous <laughs> because we can get so swept up in these amazing positive changes that we're seeing around here, like just, you know, here at, at Roberta's, there's like a rooftop garden over our heads. Um, we go to a lot of great local food, I don't know, powwows. <laughs> and, um, but there is so much um, stuff that's, that you uh, predict going on um, just with global trends, like eating trends, I found particularly fascinating. Right. Um, Although I, I should say what I really try to do in the book is um, I hope I achieve this delicate balancing act between uh, the... Uh, nope, you're all doom and gloom. Hope. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> between the hope and the doom and gloom. Uh, because I, I certainly, I am not a doom and gloom person myself. And I think that uh, there are really two directions we're moving at once. And one of those directions is definitely heading us along a path that's pretty, pretty scary. But there's this other direction. And I think you're, you've certainly seen it in your work, Kathy, I'm sure all around the country, all the, the, the people who are part of this, this national and now global movement to really reclaim our food. That's true. That's happening. And that's certainly one path we could move in that would certainly be cause for hope. Right. I Well, thank you. And, and you know, you're certainly a huge motivator in that field. I, I really like I read Grub, I think, when it came out, five years, years ago, ago. Yeah. and I was just like what <laughs> <laughs> and so forth and it just it just grew from there um so your work has really really inspired that and, and talk about your mom a little bit because she's really a for you know forerunner sure well so the book title itself diet for a hot planet is really uh paying tribute to my mother in the sense that it's playing off of her the title of her first book she wrote in 1971 now almost 40 years ago called diet for a small planet And in that book, she was among the first to really try to dig into what are the root causes of hunger. She saw hunger all around her. If you remember the the 70s, there was these massive uh, 
um, uh, epidemics of famine in Africa and people were really wondering, you know, what was causing this and there was this, this sort of this image of the scarcity of food causing these these epidemics of hunger and she dug into the research and what she discovered as a young woman, she's 26, 1971, is that actually there there was actually enough calories being produced, there's enough food being produced all around the world to, to feed us all, in fact, to make us all chubby. And so then that caused her to ask, a deeper question, which is, why is there hunger in a world where there's plenty? Why is there hunger in a world where there is enough for us all to eat? And that got her exploring those root causes of hunger and saw that it really has to do with not a lack of food, but a lack of democracy, that there is uh, increasingly uh, control over our food system among a smaller and smaller handful of companies that are making choices about where that abundance goes. Mm -hmm. And so this book is really part of a conversation, as I see it, that my mother started 40 years ago. Absolutely. I'm I'm hearing, um, you know, stuffed and starved ringing in my head. That's right. That's right. And so he's part of that conversation. And I hope this is part of it. And essentially what I say in this book is along with the social and economic costs of our food system that my mother and Raj and others have pointed out there's this other cost as well and that's the cost we're paying play, well, that's the cost we're paying with climate crisis absolutely and um, so it started with hunger it's an issue it, that's really what got her started with like the hunger issues in Africa and other underserved parts of the world and that led her to discovering our food system and how sure and hunger here here at home too true yeah and uh and one of the things i try to do in this book is to uh to help us see those global connections and to help us see that you know the fact that we have almost 40 million americans who are food insecure in this country so that's if you can to imagine the scope of that, that's the entire population of Canada is about that size. <laughs> so imagine the entire population of Canada living in the U.S. and being food insecure. So we have hunger here at home. We know there's extreme hunger all around the world. And the factors driving that behind it are are really similar all around the world. I, I really like how your book is extremely global. Uh, your work is very global. I don't know how you go to so many places. It sounds like you were all around the world last year. Um, but, you know, we can get trapped in this wonderful like bubble of you know food uh green market awesomeness or something but you know you realize you really um tapped into global trends i just want to read a quick part because i found this really interesting just as you know a gourmand point of view to see how you talk about cuisines and tastes have changed um so this is from the book you're probably aware Um, that more people across the planet from Seoul to Sayulita are eating our industrialized diet of highly processed high-fat foods and chowing on meat and dairy from industrial-scale operations. Sure, there are still pockets of people who have never sunk their teeth into a Whopper, but throughout the developing world, the dietary revolution that rocked the United States over the past two generations is transforming eating habits, agricultural practices, and bodies across the globe. Change facilitated by the spread of curved yellow arches, a smiling pigtailed redhead, and a chipper chihuahua. Just a quick few facts. Um, The trends in meat and dairy consumption alone are staggering. The United Nations predicts that that global consumption of meat will have more than doubled from 229 million tons in the early 2000s to 465 million tons by 2050. That's, um, That's pretty staggering. Yeah, I gotta say, this is one of the first radio interviews I've done since I've written the book, and it's so fun to hear somebody else read your own, read your own writing, read the book. <laughs> um, yeah, so what I try to do in this chapter is talk about if we don't do anything, where are we headed? You know, what's the what's the trend line? And as you say, one of the po- things I point out is this global expansion of 
uh, really what you could call the fast food diet that we've perfected mm-hmm. here and you can see what it's done to our bodies and our health and the fact that one in three kids now born in the, this country will develop diabetes at some point in their lifetime because of the junk that we eat. And I, I really try to drive home though, this isn't happening because all of a sudden all these people around the world are 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 craving this food and, and want it and who are we to say they shouldn't have it. That the reason why this trend is happening is directly because of massive advertising and a massive push into these markets by our US based fast food companies and and I think it's really important to stress that 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 uh our our, our tastes are being uh, force fed that's right and yeah. being we're being advertised to or being marketed to we can see what it's done to us again us in this country and uh and i think that it's it's important to see that because as i certainly have seen around the world that so many of the cultures that i've spent time in the food cultures that i've experienced you know their natural uh indigenous cultures are so healthy and so delicious sensible yeah. yes and uh <laughs> And what we have here, you know, I feel like we've been the guinea pigs for this American fast food diet, and we certainly aren't faring so well. And what what were some of your favorite places that you got to visit? Just- well, one of my favorite places was going to South Korea to spend time in Seoul and outside of Seoul on some farms with these really exciting radical farmer activists that are part of a global movement called La Via Campesina. Have you ever heard of it? No. Or me, you may have now that you've read my book. Do they speak but, English? Can you, could you go there yeah. and like, wow. Yeah, so well, the, the group that was meeting were, uh, were coming together from the Southeast, uh, um, Southeast Asia to, to really talk about what are their shared experiences as farmers, as small-scale farmers, and how can they speak up for themselves. But what was also really exciting about being in Seoul is that I met with consumer groups in the city of Seoul that were connecting with local farmers. So a lot of the kinds of stuff that we are seeing pop up in cities across our country, but on a scale that I couldn't fathom. So I belong to a a food co-op in Brooklyn that I think is pretty big. I think we have 13,000 members. Park Slope Food Co-op, 13,000 members. You know, I thought that's pretty impressive. Isn't that the oldest food co-op? It's among the oldest. But their co-ops there, I was talking to them about their co-ops, and they have a consumer farmer co-op that has 150,000 members, and another one I met with that has 50,000 members. So we're talking about a scale that we haven't seen, certainly in this country. And the idea is connecting people who live in South Korea's cities with their farmers and having that direct relationship with the farmers. That's amazing. So it sounds like... Do you think that this might be a viable uh, a model to echo around here, or do you see it already? Being I mean, like I think a- we're already seeing it, and you can see yeah. it in things like here in New York City, we've got the green market, so we've got dozens and dozens of farmers markets. Sounds a little like CSAs, too. And it sounds, yeah. it's a lot like the CSA model, mm-hmm. which is community-supported agriculture. Uh, probably many of you listeners might have heard of this, might even be a member of a CSA. And the idea with a CSA is that you become a essentially a shareholder in a farm. You invest in a farm at the beginning of the growing season and you become partners with that farmer in a sense, helping them get capital at the beginning of the year when they most need it and then getting uh, the bounty of the harvest all throughout the year. And, and you can become a CSA member on a farm that has uh, produce. There's some that have meat and dairy as well and honey and cut flowers and all kinds of things. So 
That's another model that I think is similar to totally. what I saw. In South and Korea. I just on that point, I have to say one. I think one of my favorite things about being member of the CSA, not to mention the awesome produce that was cheap, was just getting to know this one family farm and the farmer, uh, Fred Lee from Sang Lee Farms. And we got a little tour of the place, so I guess we're lucky in that sense. But just getting to know them through what they grow and when and how it came about, and you knowing that all your food came from this one area, this one plot of land. It was a really cool feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the CSA farmers that I've met in, in the U.S. and they say all the time, they say, you know, I wouldn't be farming. I wouldn't be farming if I couldn't do a CSA. I couldn't know my, my customers that, that they're farming because they want to know. They're not doing it for profit. Eating their food. Sure. And then they also say they wouldn't be a farmer without a CSA because they wouldn't be able to make a living without the CSA. Yeah. It's financial suicide. <laughs> yeah. They're in it for, for um, the love. That's right. Cool. So we're just going to take a quick musical break. Um, we'll be right back. This is Donna Summer's hot, or yeah, what is it? Hot stuff. Yeah, just because you know, hot planet. Get it? Um, on Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and we're brought to you by TechServe. Um, thanks to Roberta's Pizza and everyone here at Heritage, including Jack Inslee and Nat Wiener in the controlling booth. Today, and special thanks to Not today's the control, but the controlling booth, and they're very controlling. Yeah, yeah, they're, to- they're just like <laughs> drill masters here. Um, no, so that's Anna LePay. All right, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. And I this is definitely, i got to say, this is the only time I've ever done a radio interview where Pizza. spread out in front of us, <laughs> if you can picture this, is first of all, beautiful glass, beautiful window looking out onto a, a lovely sun-drenched patio and two huge salads and a beautiful, beautiful pizza. This it's is definitely thing, not your right? typical radio studio. If that's true. And I'm so excited that um, I, I just found out that I'm the first person on this station to have you as a guest yes. wow that's like a lifetime <laughs> achievement i'm <laughs> um, next i'm going for michael paul just kidding um no so um actually you just came out with this book i was wondering this but you just had a baby a few months ago eight months eight, eight and a half months oh okay i guess time flies time does fly yeah so how does how was that juggling you know being a you know a rock star researcher and running around the planet um and having this new 
life um, well, as a mom? Well, it's, it's been, it's actually been a lot, uh, I don't know if the word is easier than I, than I thought it would be, but well, first of all, I should okay. say my daughter is really, really mellow. She inherited her father's genes, I think, <laughs> of the patient, mellow, relaxed, calm genes, got those from her dad. And so she's been really, really fun to, to be with and fun to be a mother to and has been sleeping really well. So that's been a huge help. Fantastic. And she's also a great traveler. We've already taken her uh, to many places uh, so far. But I, I guess I think what what actually has surprised me the most about the whole experience of getting pregnant while I was still researching and writing the book and the book was actually due the day she was due so I was like working on edits having a contraction yeah it was a bit ridiculous but I think what has actually been a surprise to me about it all and I you know couldn't have predicted this is is that I think that having her enter my life when she did I you know and this is so cliche but but kids do give you such perspective about what really matters and ground you in what really matters and I feel like having her uh, in my life I feel like has just re-grounded me into why I do this work why I think it matters what I'm trying to do with the book and that sense of really wanting to be shoulder to shoulder with uh, some of my biggest environmental heroes who are all of us trying to turn our planet around from really heading over a major cliff here in terms of a tipping point of the climate crisis. And mm-hmm. so I feel like she's just been a total inspiration to me to keep doing this work. And like I said, because she's a good sleeper, she's enabled me to to do it while I've been well rested. Do you think the food movement goals is, do you think it's a humanitarian movement, a humanitarian in goals? Like you're trying to, you know, it's about people more than it is. policy, it, right? It, it or, is. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily pit those against each other. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't true. say it's an either or. Uh, I certainly feel like the, the food movement, I think it's very, it's multifaceted. I would maybe even call it food movements, plural. And I think that what, uh, how I see the, the book entering into yeah, that conversation. Yeah, we do need a better word for this yeah. at all. <laughs> what I, how I see it entering into the conversation is I hope what I do with this book is get people, again, to go back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, just to, to, to really understand the complexity of the connection between food and climate but to go beyond that to see that there are these really direct things we can do there's the things we can do every single day with the choices we make about what we eat and then there's what we can do as citizens what we can do as community members to speak up for really shifting the direction our food is headed toward uh, away from a totally climate destructive direction toward a climate friendly one so just in the same way that we're trying to fight for uh, green jobs for and for new green energy like solar and wind and green transportation like more buses and high speed rails. You know, I think it's time for us to speak up for green jobs when it comes to to food. So to to remind everybody that farming is the original green green collar job, and also to speak up for a new green infrastructure when it comes to food. Also, so really saying, look, we need to support our farmers. We need new infrastructure to bring local food into local markets. We really need investment in that. And we as citizens can speak up for it. Absolutely. And aside from speaking up, what are some of those things that we can do every day? Or what do you think is... Well, luckily, the everyday things that you can do to support climate-friendly food, I mean, they're basically the things that you and I have been talking about for a long time, that folks like Michael Pollan, Marion Nestle have been saying. The very same 
food principles that are good for your health. Those that Marion Nessel would say, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables, eat less processed foods, those kinds of lessons about healthy eating, they are also the very same things we should be doing to help the planet. So what's good for our bodies is also good for the earth. And so it starts with breakfast, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Throughout the day. That's right. So in the book, I talk about the seven principles of climate friendly, of a climate friendly diet. And again, they include things like uh, probably for many listeners, these won't be totally surprising, but you might not have thought of these choices as relating to the climate before. But there are things like again, eating less processed foods, eating more fruits and vegetables, getting uh, getting organic food as much as possible, eating less meat, meat and dairy. And if you're going to eat meat and dairy, definitely going for local and sustainably raised meat and dairy, trying to cut out packaging. Again, the kinds of things that when you talk about what it was like for you to not eat out for, was it two years? Two years. Two years. Yeah. Uh, the kinds of choices that you had to make because of that choice, those are also choices that you weren't making them because you all of a sudden, you probably weren't thinking about the climate. You were thinking about all these other issues. And yet they're all connected. And those are also choices that are going to help reduce your overall carbon food print. Yeah, I think just some, in general, like a, f- a greater food awareness will lead you on this path. And that's definitely what happened. That's right. I mean, it's basically right. being uh, being curious about your food. I mean, I think yeah. that's where it starts okay. is is if you have curiosity, if you if you go into uh, either a supermarket or even a farmer's market with a curiosity about where your food com- came from, what is the story behind your food? Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to be able to to know that, therefore, what is the good choice and what might not be such a good choice. And to think, you know, we shop so much with a, you know, a very keen eye when we shop for shoes or, you know, clothes or, um, you know, food is an everyday thing that um, it it should have a way on your mind. That's right. A little bit more. Yeah, I think it's Michael Pollan who who um, has has made that point where, you know, we spend all this time, for instance, trying to uh, shop around for the best mechanic and doing all this research and mm-hmm. and yet we'll go to the supermarket and buy food from who knows who. We don't we don't even know where it came from. Totally. So do you, um, I like to ask this with everyone, but, um, do you like, do you like to cook a lot? No, I do. And actually, you know, through with your crazy schedule and having a kid <laughs> and everything. Well, one of the things that I've discovered is, uh, you know, just starting to cook for my daughter. She, I've been nursing her up until the last couple months and just started introducing solid foods. And I, well, that's exciting. It has been yeah. so exciting. And I gotta say, she loves to eat. She's a great eater. And I realized actually how easy it is to make baby food. I kind of was a little bit Ooh. intimidated by making my own baby food and it seemed like oh it might take a lot of time but it's really pretty much the easiest and quickest thing to do to just we have a tiny little blender food, processor, our food yeah. processor and you know I think about okay what do, you, what do I think she'd like to try today? How about some corn and peas and just throw it in blend it up and it's ready to go. Hey I would eat that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually half the time I'm, I'm eating out of her bowl too so she uh, <laughs> so fun. I think that that's been exciting for me to just as a mom to to be able to demystify how to feed my own daughter and mm-hmm. I I actually wrote the forward to a book by a pediatrician called uh, his name is Dr. Alan Green and the book is called Feeding Baby Green mm. and what I love in it is he really talks about how kids are are, are you know we humans are, are hardwired to be attracted to a whole range of different flavors and different foods and that that if you kind of approach feeding your kid not from the fear-based oh my god are they gonna like their broccoli or not but from the oh of course they're gonna love broccoli and they're also gonna love sweet potatoes and corn and brown rice and all these other great things 
that uh, they really can pick up on that. And I know at least, I know this isn't true for every kid, but in my daughter's case, I mean, everything we've tried with her so far, except beets. She didn't like beets. Okay. I think you have to be taught to think that all of these things are yucky by popular culture. You know, it's not cool. Oh my God, gross green asparagus or something. It's like playground mentality. Right. And then you think again, think about the billions that the food industry spends to get kids to think certain foods are good and certain foods are kid foods and certain foods aren't good. I'm a a huge fan of this organization called Corporate Accountability International, and they Mm -hmm. have just launched a new campaign called Retire Ronald about uh, uh, arguing that it's really time for Ronald McDonald to, to retire step down. Mm-hmm. and to make this analogy between what the cigarette industry did uh, with Joe, Joe the Camel yeah. and how Ronald McDonald has become this mascot for little kids to really hook them early on a diet that is giving them diabetes, making them sick, uh, and really harming them for a lifetime. Absolutely, and you know it's so ironic too. I mean, if you're if you're eating at a place that is clearly marketing to kids with all these things, and you're not, I just, it's just you know. Let's all just bring it back down to simple, like the basics, you know, right? kid food or not. I mean, we just, do you really need like such heavy, uh, you know, who's that going to lure otherwise? Right. You know, well, and just, I, I, now that I have a, a kid myself and many of my friends are starting to have kids and just talking to some friends who are just traveling across the country and they were saying when they were thinking about where they could stop with their kid, they realized that, that the it was in the winter they were traveling and really one of the few places where their kid could run run around and blow off steam were the playgrounds uh, at the of McDonald's, McDonald's right Jeez. and they that was interesting and and they realized well then of course you're there and then of course you're going to buy something and then of course you're going to eat it and and just how that alone is is one way in which families are drawn in and kids are drawn in yep. to this food that's so bad for them. I never thought of that. That's a really interesting point. And I know that you um, traveling and trying to eat healthy is such a huge thing. And you, I'm so glad you participated in the <laughs> Week of Eating In Challenge in February back when my book came out. And we both traveled that week. Right. I think I got to say, <laughs> I did see your tweet pics on that. I think you did a slightly better job <laughs> at it. I had every intention to be packing myself up with with all this delicious food on the run. And then, of course, Ida, my daughter, kind yeah, of threw, like threw a little wrench in that. But I did write about my experience of trying to eat well on the road. Mm-hmm. And and the, one of the points that I made is that I definitely feel like as much as, of course, we live in a pretty toxic food environment, that it is getting a bit better. I mean, I was able to find that vegan sandwich at the the one of the, the delis at the airport in Washington, D.C. And I was able to find uh, some homemade soup at a little store on my way to the subway in D.C. You know, there are these little pockets of places and there's resources like Eat Well Guide and Mm -hmm. other resources that can you can tap into to to help you eat well on the road. Right. And you also did a great job cooking, it sounds like. Yes. And I yes, I've I've definitely perfected the what to bring into the hotel room to have some healthy snacks. Nice. Next time I see Anna do something like cook that I made her, her, I'm just going to like, wow, that was really amazing to see you do that. And, um, you know, it's just it's it's a great learning experience, I think, um, continuing the food movement. I certainly learned a lot from uh, Diet for a Hot Planet and we'll take a lot of those into, you know, to heart with um, with everything I cook, I think. Fabulous. Glad Um, to hear it. So was there anything else, any events that are going on this week? 
Well, we're doing a bunch of events the whole month of April. It's sort of a, a blitz of Diet for a Hot Planet events. Okay. So at takeabite.cc is our website where they're all listed. We just had a launch. I was really excited. We had a launch last week with the Manhattan Borough President, Scott Stringer, who has been just a really inspiring leader nationally uh, and here in the city uh, to promote really smart food policy. So I was really honored that he was introduced me and uh, participated in the launch. And we head out for our West Coast launch with the city of Santa Monica on Thursday, where the city of Santa Monica is launching a big food and sustainability platform, including they will be the first city to sign on to the Cool Foods platform, which essentially is uh, a platform of, uh, of of policies and actions they're going to take to try to reduce their city's carbon food print and the emissions that their city is connected to because of food. So that's our West Coast cool launch. Food, and cool Foods. Cool. Cool Foods campaign. That and sounds really neat. Yeah, it's the yeah. Center for Food Safety is a partner with me with that campaign. It's a uh, campaign that the Center for Food Safety has been working on now for a long time and, and working with restaurants, individuals, and cities. So we head out to the West Coast for that. And what is exciting about this tour is how many events we're actually doing with city governments. Yeah. I think that there's this sense of frustration we all feel about the stalemate at the international level when it comes to climate change policy and really binding emissions reductions policy. And I'm seeing and sensing, I think many of us are, that there's so many of us who just want to get to work. We just want to make some things happen. We just want to start seeing real change. And we're starting to see city governments really stepping up. And so it's been fun to see cities like Seattle, Portland, Santa Monica, New York, and more partnering with us for the tour. Wow. Well, good luck on the road. Keep doing it. And uh, hopefully I'll have to check out some more in New York City. Yes, that'd be great. Great. I wish we had more time. This is so uh, unfortunate, but, you know, time's just about up for Let's Eat In. And uh, check out takeabite.cc for more of Anna LaPay's. Check out Diet for the Hot Planet, and uh, we'll be back next week. I'm your host, Kathy Airway, and Let's Eat In. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.